0: I just got back from Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, for the Spiritual Formation Academic Conference. It was a good time. Of course, so many talks and papers were presented. For me, it's always about the people. And let me tell you what I saw. Folks from all over the world, from different disciplines, academics, theologians, pastors, philosophers and psychologists, All coming together, sharing their knowledge on this little process we've come to call spiritual formation. And in these meetings, the work of Dallas Willard, well, its core curriculum, his ideas and work its gotten out there, affecting and shaping what people teach and how they live. And so today seemed like a good day to share with you a very special podcast It's on the new Dallas Biography, Becoming Dallas Willard, The Formation of a Philosopher, Teacher, and Christ Follower. We start our time today talking with Dallas and Jane's daughter, Becky Heatley Willard, and then we move to an interview with the author of the book, Gary Moon. Of course, Becky brings the family perspective. There's a wonderful tenderness in her eyes as she talks about a person she loves very much. But there's more. Around the time Divine Conspiracy was published, Becky started working full-time with her dad. And through those years, she paid close attention. She has a wonderful mind and understands the body of Dallas' work in ways few people do. And it's worked its way in. She embodies the life with God that Dallas was so intent on sharing with the world. My name is Nathan Foster. And welcome to the Renovare Weekly Podcast. What in the world is this like for you to see a biography of your dad?
1: Oh, it's weird and it's a treasure at the same time. To have my father's life, you know, documented in such a detailed way, a lot of families are never going to have that, you know, and... So just as a family history thing, this has been a great experience. My cousins in Missouri um, long ago began uh, tracking family history. They would visit graveyards. Mm. They have tracked our family history back to Noah. I kid you not. (laughs) And the stories that they have collected from my father's generation and his parents and his grandparents, they're just amazing. And these are people that you know lived in uh, very humble circumstances, you know on farms in the Ozarks. My dad was born in nineteen thirty five and so things in our country were not good mm-hmm. at that time. You know it was just not a prosperous kind of place to be and so um there are stories of prayers for like my my dad's oldest brother and his wife prayed for rain during a drought, and it rained only on their farm. No way. It it didn't rain in the areas around them. And there was a point in time when this same uncle was in the military, and he was being moved to a new station, and my aunt needed to get word to him about something, and she didn't know how. She woke up in the middle of the night with an address in her head, Okay. And she got up and wrote it down and went back to bed. And the next morning, she mailed a letter to my uncle at that address. It got to where he was going to be before he did. Uh-huh. And he didn't know where he was going. There's no way other than God that uh-huh. she would have known that. And um, prayers of my dad's grandmother and what her um, prayer life was like. She had a place on the farm where she went away from everybody to pray and um, and you know there's so many pastors in my family and just this great spiritual heritage and um, what a gift that is you know and so so we were learning a lot from my cousins and and my Aunt Bertha who was still alive at the time that Gary Moon was doing these interviews and Uh she has since she passed away so I'm really grateful that we were able to get interviews from her. She's the last um, uh, well I was going to say the last of that generation but there are still some cousins but of my dad's four the brothers and sisters. Um, Mm -hmm, She's mm -hmm. the last spouse of of anyone outside of my mom now. Mm -hmm. And so um, so we learned a lot and then the same with um, his work at USC. Mm. Uh, Mary Moon was interviewing other professors there and students, and so we learned a lot about kind of the inner workings that we didn't hear about at home so much. So that's been a real treasure to have all of that and to understand better about his work. There's a great section on how Dallas Willard came to meet Richard Foster and how um, Renovari came to be out of that, and really a lovely, I, I think it's the better part of a chapter on that. Portion of my dad's life that overlapped with your dad, mm. and how they helped each other, and the growth of Rinavari and, and um, how they both started writing books, and mm-hmm. uh, but your dad contributed heavily to that part of telling the story, and that was really nice. Um, so it's wonderful that way, and it's it's weird because my dad had always said he never wanted anybody to write a biography about him, so it's kind of weird that it happened and it happened so quickly,
2: Yeah.
1: but um, it's a good thing, you know, and happening that fast made it a very emotional project for everyone, Okay. but that did mean that my Aunt Bertha was still around mm. to be interviewed, and one of my dad's closest friends who contributed really heavily to the book, you'll see Randy Neal's name in there quite a bit, So, Randy was a huge contributor to the book, and you'll see a lot of his story in there, too. Um, He helped make In Search of Guidance happen, and that story is told in there. Um, He passed away last September, and the good thing about going ahead and doing it so soon was, you know, that we had two really key contributors who were here to participate in
0: that. Mm -hmm. It would have been Uh, lost.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, grateful Mm -hmm. for that.
0: What do you hope for people to take away from learning about your dad's life?
1: Well, I hope that um, they will follow dad as he followed Christ. You know, our hope with the biography was that people could see um, who his influences were Mm -hmm. and um, how his uh, spiritual life developed and how his Thought life developed, um, and you know how those same influences—because most of them were authors—those uh, same influences are available for our own personal growth, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and of course, just how much the scripture played into my dad's life, and how you know how how he talked about memorization and the importance of that, and making scripture part of you. And I'm really pleased that it's showing the importance of philosophy in mm. um, in my dad's spiritual teaching, uh, because within philosophy, what he was studying there, he was learning about reality and truth and knowledge and their importance, and then able to take that into the Christian realm where reality and truth and knowledge are really important Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to be able to say that you can know God and here's how, you know, and that um, there is a a line of there's truth, you know, Mm -hmm. and we in our society right now, things are very, Blurry and there's a lot of gray areas and we have political correctness and all this kind of stuff. But there are truths mm-hmm. and they have been there since the foundation of the world. And uh, we need to not be backing down from those things. We need to stand with them. When my dad was ill, about six weeks before he passed away, we were talking one day, and he was saying that one of his regrets was that he never made sure people understood how important philosophy was Mm. within Christian teaching Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how that was such a foundation to the other things that he taught. And so I'm so pleased that this book really covers that.
2: Mm, And mm
1: -hmm. um, Gary did a great job working with some of my dad's former students and colleagues to um, put together uh, this flow that explains the the philosophical concepts
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
1: really takes them down to street level mm-hmm. and, um, and showing how that impacted what my dad was teaching. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I'm really thrilled about that with this book Good. yeah, that's uh, my favorite thing
0: you know i i haven't I haven't seen the book yet, but I was talking to my dad, and he went through explaining some of the philosophical stuff and how helpful it was for him that he never really understood, you know, his uh, field of study in terms of his specialty. But when he explained it to me, immediately it just popped in terms of, oh, that totally makes sense. That okay. all that's in his, you know, uh, uh, Christian writing, that background. So, I'm really excited to see that.
1: Well, good. Yeah, Good. I, there's there's been some concern that it would look like a lot of philosophy, and that people wouldn't want to read that
2: mm-hmm.
1: but um it's not one big hunk that you have to deal with to get through the book you know it's it's spread throughout the story, and I mean it is you know it's in the middle section of the book it doesn't go from childhood obviously through <laughs> you know but <laughs> uh, but it's not just like one one big hunk of philosophical jargon that you have to get through you know it's Mm -hmm. it's very nicely done and and it weaves in with the story and so um yeah i i think it's it's really gonna make a difference in helping Mm -hmm. understand his teaching
0: well and it sounds like then this may be honoring some of his uh wishes for people to understand that so what an additional bonus yeah yeah that's good
1: Uh, one of the surprising things about the biography was that uh, we, we heard so much more about the difficulties in my dad's life and he had shared, you know, various things. Like we knew his mom died when he was so young, didn't have a lot of money and he had lived with various aunts and uncles growing up and eventually lived with his older brother. But um, he, he never talked about that in a way that would try to, Bring about pity or make you sad for him or anything like that. It was just kind of how it was, and um, so you know, in Gary's interviewing process, he learned that my dad's stepmother uh, didn't want children in the house, mm. and was she was intentionally farming them out to the aunts and uncles and things like that. And and I think there's a number of places throughout his story of his young life where. Um, my dad was just seeing it as that's how it was, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the way you grew up is your normal, right? And so that was his normal. And, um, so he never cast it in a light of having been so hard or anything. It was just his normal. I remember one day, um, Not long, not that long ago, really, I think my dad was in his 70s already, we were at our house, uh, we were having an Easter dinner, I think. And my dad made a comment about how he still after all these years is not used to holidays, including a big feast, like Hmm. the big ham or turkey or whatever. And it was just a little side comment, you know, that after all this time, he's still not used to that. And so we started asking questions and, and he said that his family on holidays, you know, they might all get together, they would have a normal meal, everybody'd go home. It wasn't, it wasn't this big production, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's just, that was normal for him. And so it's been, that was one of the surprises in the stories that um, came back was, um, it makes it sound, uh. A lot sadder Mm. than than I remember and doesn't really match my impressions of dad growing up. He told me so many funny stories
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. about
1: him and the other kids playing on the farm and all of his cousins were around. I mean, it was like this one huge extended family and the trouble they would get into and the silly things they'd say and the the code you had to say to get into the clubhouse and, (laughs) you know, just a lot of fun stuff. And so that, that was, um, that was a surprise in reading this, you know, to, I don't know if it's more of a reality check, I suppose, but Hmm. it was also the way he looked at life, you know, Mm -hmm. and he was saying God has done well by me. (laughs) And so I don't think he, thought that his life was tragic by any means, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. even though there was some rough stuff in his childhood.
0: Right. So in, in kind of collecting this together, then, some of the difficulties that, that he may have encountered, those aren't things that you saw in who he was as a, as a person. They Mm -hmm. were, so, so hearing it then, is, is it maybe a little jarring to go, Oh, wait a minute. Like some of this stuff was, like kind of a big deal or is it that he just had a good healed sense of life and God and who he was?
1: Yeah, I think it's the latter. It, you know, he had so much joy and mm-hmm. he was always walking around the house whistling and, mm. um, you know, I had, he told me one time that uh, somebody came to the Lord who lived on the street that he would walk to and from uh, school when he was in college mm-hmm. because he was always singing hymns when he walked to school mm. and so this neighbor finally came out and talked to dad and dad led him to the lord and you know that's that's the kind of life he lived he just there was this joy that was always there and um so yeah it was kind of like he'd read these things and go Oh, I had no idea.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's sweet.
1: And I'm sure he wouldn't have shared anything that he thought was going to be, you know, something that would draw attention to him or make Mm. people pity him or something like that. I don't think he would have wanted that. So Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: he just didn't talk about stuff in that way.
0: I went on to record another interview with Becky about her growing up and working with her dad, but I'll save that one for another time. Now we turn to a conversation I had with the author of the book, Gary Moon. Here's the thing to know about Gary. He's another one of those serial entrepreneurs, a bit of a renaissance man. He's had his hand in a number of projects. He's a professor of psychology, started a graduate program at Richmond. Started Conversations Journal, Life Springs Videos, the Renovare Institute, a D-man for Spiritual Direction at Fuller. He's also authored a number of books. In the last few years, he's been the director of the Dallas Willard Center of Christian Spiritual Formation at Westmont College. He just announced he's moving back to Atlanta to continue his work with them, but heading up a new project, Conversational Divina. You've done it, Gary. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Congratulations! Oh, if, if I'd only known what was involved, I don't think I would have could have possibly gotten started. But yes, it feels wonderful. level.
0: says every book ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, says every book um, worth reading. Huh? Maybe uh-huh. I could go <laughs> that, right. Uh, I want to talk about the book, but before I jump in there. Can I ask you just a little about your background in terms of when did you first become exposed to Dallas's work?
3: Oh, that's a good question. Um, Yeah, I I didn't know it at the time as far as what was happening simultaneously. But uh, a a friend gave me a copy of The Spirit of the Disciplines and said I had to read it. He had been at a conference uh, in Chicago. And I did. I trusted him. I read it. and incredible. Turns out that uh, one of John Ortberg's friends was at the same conference, and someone gave him a copy of the same book and said, you've got to read this. And, and long story short, one of the reasons it grabbed me so much, I'd spent six years at uh, Fuller Seminary, you know, wanting to integrate psychology and theology, and, uh, and I loved it. But I read this book, and I was like, well, this is what was missing, and this is what I drove across the country to discover, and here it is in this book. And um, so within, oh, I think within a year, maybe less, um, we were starting something. It was at Regent University at the time called the Institute of Clinical Theology. Mm-hmm. And we invited Dallas, just based on the first few chapters of that book, to, to be the first speaker. And he said yes, because it seems like he almost always said yes to things like that. And um, the first words out of his mouth at the conference were, all theology should be clinical theology, and uh, he had a friend for life at that point. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I just kept trying to think of ways to be in the same room with him. So, uh, over the years, we did, uh, you know, a DVD, small group resource projects, and mm-hmm. uh, the conversations journal was inspired by him and your dad, mm-hmm. uh, and I just uh, kept going to there. Eventually, the Renovari Institute, and. Um, yeah. So, so for two decades, I looked for excuses to hang around. And-
0: <laughs> now, you—I mean—before his passing, he was teaching in the institute quite a oh, bit. Yeah. So, you—you've sat, sat through hours of talks. Yes.
3: Yeah. 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 He—the um, first three years of the institute, he taught uh, uh, two weeks each year, mm-hmm. and then I sat in on the. Uh, a fuller men experience a, a, a time or two. Uh, so yeah, short answers. Yes.
0: Mm. Give me a statement or two about what have you most appreciated about his work through the years?
3: Several things with mean, some people. I think Jan Johnson is one that uses the phrase that, you know, that spiritual formation is, um, is, is caught more than taught. So I think you know, in large part, I'd be like everyone else in, in saying, that he embodied what he was teaching was, mm-hmm. was, was huge. Uh, yeah, I think the other thing is um, I, I, I think he came along in a time where it felt like something was missing in some pockets of Christianity, I think maybe especially evangelical Christianity. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's to me, it's odd that he was so cognitive and thoughtful and brilliant, but I really think what he brought. That was missing was more uh, an appreciation for the experiential that hmm. you can step into and experience this, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and that you are stepping into that experience with a God that is uh, almost beyond imagination as far as all the positives, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That a good and you know good and beautiful God.
0: Isn't that fascinating? That a person who I mean one of the most brilliant minds of our day. I can say that with confidence, at least yeah, in, yeah. in my opinion. Um, happened to be a person that emphasized experience as opposed to cognition. I mean, obviously, study yeah. is super important to him, but um, what an interesting—you just don't see that in academics too much, I guess.
3: No, exactly, and I, I think he saw because he was so smart. Hmm. He saw that that was something that was missing in in some expressions of, of modern Christianity. That uh, not in early Christianity, but in that that we lose the sense that uh, yeah, when you come up from the baptismal waters, uh, you are in a whole new realm of reality that's actually there, that's actually all around.
2: And mm-hmm.
3: uh, I think uh, to me that would be. and I may correct myself in a minute, but I think that would be the two primary things. Um, that you can experience the Trinity, you can experience the kingdom, um, and that you are what you are experiencing is an unimaginably uh, good and loving God.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about personally? Is there a statement or two you can give us that you appreciated about the person of Dallas?
3: Um, availability. Uh, this availability. I, I can't believe... That someone with his opportunities would say so many yeses and, uh, uh, well, that we would have in one institutes and he would come in and would teach three hours a day for five days, but then he would insist on spending 30 minutes or so with every student. And that, and that personally, that also got to experience some of just his, his availability and mm-hmm. accessibility.
0: I don't know how he did it. I mean, just energy-wise, yeah, because he's kind of legendary for that, right? The,
3: yeah, I, d- I don't, I don't, I don't know either. And especially since you can't really kind of tell if he's a introvert or an extrovert. I mean, you can't write that many books and prepare that many talks and be a, a flaming extrovert. But still, he would uh, would let people draw energy from him. Yeah,
0: from yeah, yeah. Okay, so w- why the why the book? Why the biography?
3: Well. Um, it didn't set out to do that. In fact, um, seven years ago or so, when I had the great good fortune of um, being allowed to direct the Ellis um, Wilder Center at Westmont, we uh, Dallas was still alive. There was no mm-hmm. thought that he wasn't going to be with us for a long time. Fact, I'm not sure I would have. Wanted to drive across the country if I'd known that it was, you know, it was to be with him was part of drawing the attraction. <laughs> Another excuse but, but,
0: to be in the same <laughs> room. right? Yeah, I'm going to move that's, from Atlanta that's,
3: to. <laughs> that's, that's actually, that's exactly right. Um, but um, I really,
0: things, can, I really like. There's something kind of <laughs> sweet about because I mean, I think you're really genuine. You, you wanted to hang out with this guy that had influence. Yeah, influence too. That,
3: that, that, that's true. That's exactly right. So, so even in those early, in the first couple of years, uh, I, months before there was a diagnosis or anything concerning his health, um, we had some ideas about maybe doing a documentary. Um, and so I had the good fortune to spend a lot of time with Dallas and the family and just, just interviewing, but not for a biography, for a documentary. Uh, and so probably had more than 100 single space lines of kind of interview stuff and then you know, then uh, the diagnosis came, and so forth, and that um, uh, evolved into um, into the biography. So then, getting to interview him became lots of material. It, it, exactly, but the interviews, you know, they were initially for what was to be a documentary, not a yeah. biography, and. Ah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Set set the stage for folks in the book. How is it structured and ordered in terms of telling his story?
3: Well, as far as just the structure of the book, um, that that goes back to being able to attend with a lot of other people um, after he uh, after he passed away. That uh, that the, there were three memorial services it was very striking, and and that so there's you know, there's one that said. Um, Church on the way i don't know how many people two thousand people or so and um and then this one that's very private and uh, mostly family and friends, and then, in some ways, the most moving ceremony to me was the one at u s c mm. and it struck me during the u s c service how he sort of lived in three different worlds that mm. that uh there are probably many people in, in the, at the USC service in this philosophy world. I mean, this may sound sacrilegious, but they, they may have never heard of, of your dad, Richard Foster. I mean, it sure. seems inconceivable. Uh, and then vice versa. There are people in the ministry world that um, might not know a lot about Husserl or, uh, mm, you know. The philosophy work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Were there people so, in the so,
0: philosophy world that wouldn't have even known Divine Conspiracy and, and his work?
3: Um, not in his close inner circles, but yes, yes, people in his office for advising and so forth may, may well not have known and some of his colleagues may, may not have, may not have known. So, so, it, so that it was just striking these three worlds. And so long story short this the first part is Dallas's first 30 years of life. And, uh, and, and I was kind of driven to, um, I mean, so many of us know Dallas, after age fifty, you know it's an incredible philosopher who who uh who uh, speaks and uh, who speaks wisdom that you just you know want to soak in for a few days. Um, it's got it all together and but I realized that none of us had really not few of us uh, had met the Dallas prior to age thirty. the Dallas prior to age 50 so the first part it, probably half the book is Dallas before age 30 and then it moves into three parallel sections where ages um, well for 1965 to 85 or for Dallas age 30 to 50 or so um, it takes you through the through those three parallel worlds, so those 20 years at USC, those 20 years from perspective of ministry and those he's ministering with, and then in terms of uh, closer friends and family, and then at that point, at, in 1985, we, we finished it out, keep the narrative going, and let his books kind of pull us through the uh, the last years of his life up until, uh, you know, of course, a diagnosis in the, the last few months of his life.
0: And you you went trips to Missouri, talked with family. I mean, you did a lot of interviews for this book,
3: yes? Uh, it, as an in, in, in incredible experience and incredibly fortunate. And, um, and in doing some of that, that's where the title came from. I mean, to sit in a room with, uh, with, uh, Bertha Willard. Bertha is his, uh, sister-in-law and she, she's passed away. Uh, uh, so that was very fortunate to be able to spend several days with, with her and his nieces and, and other folks from Missouri. But, so you're sitting in a room with Bertha and uh, Bertha Willard, um, his older brother, J.I.'s wife. And you hear her talking story about telling stories about this, you know, four or five, six year old little boy, uh, and you just you just didn't expect some of this stuff so so one one of her lines, Bertha says that when Dallas came to live with us, meaning um uh, she and her husband j i Dallas's brother uh I was so young, he was so young uh I didn't raise him, we raised each other <laughs> uh, but but it, but then you then you start getting a little. You know hints of things that uh, well. Sometimes they're just they're just fun. Like uh, uh, she tells stories about. She goes into in the room and Dallas is sitting on the sofa with with his cheeks in his hands and, uh, and he's looking kind of uh, upset. And she says, "What's wrong?" And he says, "You know what makes me mad?" She says, "What?" And he says, "It's when the one that's supposed to be doing the cooking gets sick." <laughs> it's, it's just it's just a silly story, but it shows you. Just kind of glimpses of Dallas, the four-year-old, the five-year-old. Uh-huh. But, but then there's one a little bit more poignant when um, a little bit later, Bertha's pregnant. She's going to have a, their first baby with J.I. And Dallas it looks very sad again. And she says, uh, well, what's going on? And and he says, um, you, when the baby comes, uh, you're not going to want me around anymore. Mm. And you just start finding these real emotions and, and, you know, Dallas is, um, his mom died, as you know, when he was two mm-hmm. and a half. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have, uh, you know, real visual memories of, of his mom, but this um, deep longing, this deep love. And you start wondering how, how might this, how might this affect someone? And you, and you, you realize with those stories and a hundred or a thousand more that it's he's becoming Dallas Willard.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, uh, okay.
3: it, it just makes common sense at one level, but to me it was kind of a jolt that this person that you see after age fifty wasn't always that person. That he became that person, <laughs> and to me that was so hope, so hope giving <laughs> for, for all of us that you don't. Uh, uh, it doesn't <laughs> require perfection. In fact, perfection might work against the, the journey of becoming.
0: So, wait, you, you, it surprised you to hear that he was in process mm-hmm. through the years?
3: Uh, it, did, it did a little bit, to be honest with you, because it was, so, it, it, um, I think Philip Yancey has a sign, uh, a line about, uh, like, the Jesus movies of the 50s and 60s, where he talks about Prozac Jesus, as you know, <laughs> Jesus that's in this world, but the feet don't quite touch the ground, and, you know, is, is um, somehow uh spiritually intellectually is a, just above it all and so to and so to realize their rawness and the earthiness and and the process and and the pain and the sometimes the doubt and it is just um yeah it, it was a very rich thing, and of course that's an, an i mean any biography is an interpretation, and so that's my sure interpretation of this but
0: hmm hmm So, it was sort of deconstructing how this person you'd come to admire and appreciate came to be.
3: Well, and 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 I'm not saying this to be nice, but, but marveling at the construction, of yeah. the construction process of the coming to World.
0: Good. In all those interviews you did, I mean, how, can I ask, how many hours do you think of interviews you've done?
3: Oh, I would be embarrassed to say. I don't know. In the back of the book, it lists all of them and the dates, mm-hmm. but it was just... I would just simply say that I <laughs> put far more time into the biography than I than I would have into two dissertations. In <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. don't be embarrassed. It just says it's <laughs> thorough and and mm-hmm. w- well mm-hmm. put together. That's all that's saying. But that, did you get a sense of how people? I'm just I'm picturing the folks in Missouri or yeah. or, or others from his early years. Do you get a sense of what they thought of him and who he'd become? And what, what was the kind of kind of vibe in the room about little Dallas? huh?
3: Well, I, I, I think everyone would have said that there's something different or something special there. They would comment on his intellect or maybe seeming a little bit more mature in some ways than than, than the rest of them. Um, I mean, there, there was respect. There was nothing but respect um, uh, and I mean, <laughs> there's wonderful stories with you know a, a friend that grew up and worked with him on the farm, and I mean they, they they I think everyone knew there was something special there, but there was also a sense that this is just a real person, a real a person who doesn't have perfect attendance at school and doesn't always make A's, and and uh, and actually once said. Uh, the Tennessee temple gets caught cheating on an exam and the <laughs> exam happens to be a Romans class. And, but however, it was almost like it, this is probably hyperbole. It was almost like Dallas never wasted any pain. Uh, mm-hmm. that experience with the exam led to a, uh, a profound religious experience in a, in a revival service on campus at Ten- a campus at Tennessee. Uh, you almost, um, it was like if it's almost like if Dallas, uh, if he faced a challenge or or what some you know quote unquote failure, he might double down on it. Mm-hmm. He's taken um, an algebra class at Tennessee Temple, and uh, and he's you know is not confused, but he's asking a question because the professor says as he adds. Puts a two on both sides of the equation to balance it and says, and Dallas raises his hand, where did you get the two? And the professor says, out of thin air, Mr. Willard, out of thin air. You know, when Dallas didn't like that too much, and um, he decided to get his math education across the street from Tennessee Temple at uh, University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. I, I say all that to say this. So from that experience, he, he as he likes math, I guess he takes five college math classes when that was far more than he needed. Turns out later he would have had a hard time an even a harder time unlocking Kusril without the mathematical background. Mm. It was it was like, um, you know, roadblock or difficulty, double down, and then you see how that becomes important later.
0: Yeah, yeah, it all comes together. The pieces, yeah, never wasted any pain. Such a good yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. Such a good line. I, I asked um, or made a comment to to, to Becky about this, and, and I'm curious to hear your opinion on it. So when, um, when my dad taught at Friends University, he, he would bring Dallas, and, and then he said he would, you know, put, uh, schedule meetings with all the different departments, and then he would just be able to carry on these conversations as if he was, you know, like an expert in the
3: field, you know the first <laughs> first thought that comes to mind is kind of humorous. I mean, I think he, he obviously was incredibly well read, and must have had something. I don't know about a photographic memory, but something in that you know, not too many zip codes away from that. I, you know, there's one story. I think Keith Meyer actually tells it in the uh, their earlier book. there's kind of a tribute, a lot of essays and, mm-hmm. and so forth, where where something you know. Uh, something comes up about music and it ends up being the the beach boys. And, and Keith, uh, <laughs> he was attempting to prove, you know, I guess, you know, uh, I guess Keith probably said that, you know, trying to prove or impress Dallas that he knows something. And he, he suggests that Dallas may have the wrong name of the bass guitar player. And then Dallas says, oh, Keith, I think you're thinking about the, you know, 19 so-and-so album. This I'm talking about <laughs> you know, the year before, <laughs> but anyway, all of that to say, just the breadth of knowledge was was dazzling. Is dazzling.
0: Yeah, yeah. In the um, in, in the book, one of the um, pieces that I know my dad had talked about really appreciating was the way you worked with his philosophical work, and and for me, something just clicked in 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 catching some of that and seeing how that fit into his you know theological and formation work. It really fits together
3: yeah yeah. several things about that one um i mean um <laughs> I mean sometimes I think that God bless me actually with low intelligence I, I, I mean what I mean is for well, I think a better way to say it is if my brain were a computer, it would be an old k pro, but with a pretty good color graphics package so what, what I mean is <laughs> i I have a hard time grasping it but if but if I can get it it's easier to illustrate it, but the giving of it, Oh my, as far as the theological and philosophical stuff that was through so many conversations with uh, Dallas's philosophy students, uh, Greg and Aaron Preston, Steve Porter, just on and on and on. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, omitting half of them, but I, I mentioned them in the book and, uh, some of the theological stuff, so much help from a lot of folks, uh, um, uh, Mike Robb being one of, of many. So, so uh, uh, th- thank you. But I think the only compliment is it took me a while to sort of get it, and then once I got it, it was a little bit easier to maybe say at a, a level that I could understand. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, there's a compliment in there because yeah. there is, when you got to kind of work hard to get it, mm-hmm. then you're it almost makes you a better teacher in a way because you're you're able to kind of meet people where you were at before. So, oh, thank um, you. Well, well done with it. In, in writing the book, is there a, a piece or two that surprised you or was uh, helpful for you that you didn't know you'd
3: find? Two things, uh, two, two different things, uh, and, and I mean, there are many. Um, one thing that's surprising, and I, and I, and, uh, I say this with awe, um, I was surprised by the theme of, of, of pain. Mm-hmm. Let me quickly say that I'm very appreciative to uh, the family uh, for allowing that to be told because it um, it's difficult to write something that isn't hagiography, mm-hmm. uh, and, and there, was a lot, there was a lot there, and I only wanted to tell it because it seems so formative. That 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 as we said earlier that that Dallas didn't waste the pain. And it seemed like, as I interviewed person after person after person, the closer you got to Dallas, the more the story seemed to shift to some kind of kind of intimate sharing back and forth. First, and mostly, mostly, um, Dallas being interested in the pain of others and being an incredible minister, spiritual director, listening to that. But then sometime in occasions, his, his disclosing, you know, and uh, um his own pain. So so that that theme was actually a, a surprise.
2: Mm-hmm. The other
3: thing is the um the incredible diversity of uh of friendships. And it was a consistent theme. So you're at uh you know Woodlake Avenue Friends, and there's your your dad, this uh young pastor with a doctorate degree from Fuller and, and they become fast friends. But also Dallas becomes friends with a uh, Tony Dorenzo, a third grade education. And uh, mm. it's just is um, he met, well, I guess like we were saying other, he also was able to meet people at a level of experience and you know in personhood. And um and another just thing is you know, a similar vein. So you meet folks like a Walter Hopp, who's was a PhD student in Dallas, Dallas's who you now is at Boston university and kind of a star philosopher. And he arranged a conference at Boston and all these philosophers came to it and they were brilliant. And it, uh, and I understood about half of it. It made me <laughs> brain bleed a little bit. And so, so you, I'm coming back from that experience and it's not too many days or weeks later, I'm sitting at a sidewalk cafe and, uh, and this person starts talking about uh, the lamplighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was very familiar to I me. Mean, restaurant where Dallas met so many people. Uh, he's talking, and, uh, and it has to be the time of the World Series. is uh, claiming that he had a nephew that played in the World Series that was a star. He mentioned his name. And I'm kind of doubtful, but I, I can't help it. So I ask him, you know, uh, you know, lamplighter said, uh, do you have, oh, he said, he said he used to go there all the time you know, 30 mm-hmm. years ago, he used to go there all the time. Do you ever meet someone named Dallas? And, and uh, he said, Dallas, you know, he, he, and Willard, I said, Dallas Willard. And he, he said that he had, but I was very doubtful that he really had It's 30 years ago. So, <laughs> you know, you have lots of conversations. No, just one 10 minute conversation at the checkout counter. Oh yeah, really, really? What'd you talk about? He said, oh, well, you know, metaphysics and theology. And, all. <laughs> and so, so, oh, and it turns out this person at the time, uh, was homeless. Mm. So here's Dallas with world-class philosophers and, and, you know, uh, and, and um, people following a course to living in their car. And this particular person remembered fondly. And in fact, at one point had a tears sliding down his cheek as he's remembering, uh, you know, 10 minute conversation with Dallas 30 mm. years ago. <laughs> Just the diversity of his, of his interest.
0: That's great. I'm so thankful that you had the courage to follow your curiosity to be <laughs> in the same room <laughs> with Dallas. One last question, if I can. Okay, sure. All right. And it's a, it's a, it's a big one. Okay. So if you don't have an answer, we're okay. We'll just cut right. It right on out. When you look at the last, well, let me back up. When you got spirit of the disciplines, how, how many years ago was that?
3: Oh well that would have been roughly eighty eight, eighty-nine. And okay. it'd have been out half a year maybe.
0: Okay, so thirty years ish. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Yep. So when you look at the last uh, thirty years. I was in I was in elementary
3: school. <laughs> oh <No. laughs> yes. No, was, yeah, yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when you were in sixth grade thirty years ago. Yeah. Um, yep. how is learning, studying and now, you know, with your work there at Westmont? How has Dallas impacted your life trajectory?
3: I'll try to make both answers short. Um, the one that's less dead center and to the point is that um, in almost every way, imaginable career wise. I mean, I, sure. it turned out that I, um, I mean, even teaching uh, at Richmond in Atlanta before that it was Psychological Studies Institute. I mean, it's a way to weave Dallas into virtually every class. I mean, he kind of, he, he was the, uh, I mean, I wrote an article about Dallas once called Dallas Weller, My Favorite Psychologist. But there was something to that. Because he was talking about, uh, unashamedly, the invisible parts of the person's soul and spirit, there was a psychology that I got nowhere else, even in an integration program that, that I got from Dallas. So, um, virtually every aspect, career-wise, it was some kind of bridge to Dallas, the, the summary thing, the summary thing is this, um, I mean, in the book, and it's also talked about uh, elsewhere, um, there's this conversation that Dallas has with J.P. Moreland, uh, one of his 31 PhD students in philosophy that he had at USC. And so this is right before a major operation that Dallas doesn't know if he's going to survive, and he invites J.P. over It's kind of a funny line in there about it. I mean, uh, you know, JP asks him a question, kind of an empathetic question, uh, you know, about how he's feeling. And and Dallas says, well, you know, JP, uh, pretty good, actually, because I actually actually believe all the stuff that I've been teaching (laughs) and (laughs) writing. But anyway, it was was better said than that. However, Dallas eventually gets to telling JP, I guess it's the reason he, he invited him over. These are the four critical concerns that have driven my life. Yeah. And when you read those concerns and get them, you realize, Oh my goodness, there, there wasn't a, a Christian book anyway that he wrote that wasn't driven by one of these concerns and just the importance and the wisdom of those four concerns. I think I will live with, think about, work with the rest of my life. And, and, um, to say them briefly, and I'll say them as he said them to JP, and then I'll say them as a normal person can understand them. <laughs> but he said he had, a, he had a concern for a robust metaphysical realism, and philosophers might critique the interpretation I'm about to say to do it in just a few words, but basically that uh, even things that you cannot see, such as the Trinity and the kingdom, are part of reality. It sounds like nothing at, a, at one level, but at another level it's everything. I mean, go to a university day and try to convince them that you want to only work with things that uh, are not, you can't see and can't fully verify. So <laughs> an invisible things are real. real. That yeah. The... Yeah. And then that, uh, the concern for epistemic realism, that not only are they real, not only is the Trinity real, you can interact with the Trinity. It's possible to learn from, to interact with the Trinity. Um, and at one level, That there are many levels where spiritual disciplines come into play, with one being habit reformation. But at one level, that's what that's about: Um, uh, being in more a position of awareness for interacting with uh, with this reality, with the Trinity. Um, Then the anthropology one that we are uniquely designed to do just that. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one: this is well, they're all big, but this one's pretty daunting. That if these first three things are true, then Christian spiritual formation should produce real and measurable change. It kind of looped, it kind of circles back to the mm-hmm. to the first one. It does become, it should become measurable. It, it should be real and objective. And if that's true, then spiritual formation, uh, instead of being separated from the academy, uh, should have a chair at the table, at least next to sociology and psychology, if not physics, because you're dealing with reality
2: mm-hmm.
3: and change and measurable change. So those those were just highly important to me. It's like they were the connecting tissue between mm-hmm. what he wrote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Robust metaphysical realism, divine conspiracy, epistemic realism, hearing God, spirit of the disciplines, the anthropology question, renovation of the heart. You're dealing with not just faith, but knowledge, knowing Christ today is like this Tight, cohesive, mm. consistent approach.
0: That's good. That's good. I like it. But I am going to push a little more. Okay. 30, 30 years of studying, working with his work, and then also just the person. How how has it changed you?
3: It's <laughs> hard to know where to jump in. Um, well, I think it. I, I'll I'll just say this. I think it saved my Christianity. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I would have ever had the courage to have uh, walked away from it. Uh, but I think I certainly would have become at best kind of a nominal Christian because it wasn't making any, it wasn't making a lot of sense to me. I didn't I didn't see the promises being cashed or turned into reality, and I, uh, and it, so much of it didn't make sense for really, if I was just really honest with myself and it made sense of, um, made sense of Christianity. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and so it, it, it sent me on a journey to pursue an experiential expression of Christianity that that seems to hang together. And as far as the psychology side of who I am, um, it, <laughs> it, it, um, it kind of saved that too. Um, <laughs> as far as that there, 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 there might actually be a way to real change as important as behavior change and thought change and relationship change those are, those are hugely important but there might be a way uh, to, deeper, to, deep, to deeper change uh, if, if one can actually become pervaded by love how can that not have mental health implications
0: that's good that's so good. Gary, I, I really appreciate taking the
3: time. Enjoyed it, Nate. Thank you.
0: Well, there you have it. Again, the book is titled Becoming Dallas Willard, The Formation of a Philosopher, Teacher, and Christ Follower. It's out by University Press, it reads like a novel. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And for those of you who missed the academic conference, You can order videos of the sessions on the Dallas Willard Center Conference website. If you're academically minded, this is well worth it. Many of the sessions are worth a second or third listen. As always, thanks for listening and have a great week.